Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to This Week Explained. I am Tiana. And I am Kervin. <laughs> and today we will be covering all the big geopolitical stories from the week. And I apologize in advance for any sneezing or coughing that might come through because I'm sick. I always get sick whenever Kervin has to leave for work. And, you know, this is no different. But we have a lot to get into. So what's on your radar? All right. We're going to briefly touch Russia, Ukraine, what's going on there. But I really want to focus on what's happening in Moldova, who is continuing to be on Putin's radar. Then we go China, which is warning of conflict with the U.S. not to be outdone. North Korea is warning that there's going to be conflict with South Korea in the U.S. And then I really want to focus on what's been going on in the United States, because a lot of stories have been coming out. And it is affecting the geopolitical landscape. Mm -hmm. The U.S. may send U.S. troops to Mexico, and that's huge if that actually happens. But then there's a lot of intelligence stuff coming out. So after the Seymour Hersh article came out that kind of said the U.S. was involved in sabotaging the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, U.S. officials have said that intelligence points the finger at rogue pro-Ukrainian forces. Then we'll get into what I think was a very unethical thing that has happened within the Department of Homeland Security, who's been collecting domestic intelligence for the U.S. government. Well, luckily, a lot of the people tasked with this felt it was <clears throat> it was crossing the line, because isn't that why it got exposed to begin with? Yes. Okay, exactly. we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So what is the big news coming out of the war in Ukraine? Well, I first want to say that on the morning of this, the morning in Ukraine of March 9th, that Russia sent tons of munitions, including ballistic missiles, to various locations to include as far west as Lviv, Ukraine, which was sort of untouched before um, this year. And that's that's concerning, but I haven't had time to like dive into all of that. It'll be in the newsletter come when it comes up Monday, but I really want to focus on the fighting that continues in Bakhmut. That fighting is between sort of Russian special forces between in the Wagner group who are clashing with conventional Ukrainian military. So what is the significance of Bakhmut in the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia? So Bakhmut is kind of a symbol of Ukraine's fortitude and perseverance, kind of like Kiev was at the beginning. And that's in, in the face of Russian military onslaught in that region. Now for Russia, They want Bakhmut because it is essential for achieving its goal of taking complete control of Donetsk. That's one of the four Ukrainian regions that Russia annexed in September. Now, honestly, Ukraine has turned Bakhmut into like a meat grinder. It's a wartime term for just they've been killing off thousands of Russian forces as they've been coming around. But I've also seen that they that Ukrainian forces could also be getting did right now 
in that region. So there's a lot going on. Meat grinder is such a gross term. Like the the visuals attached to it are just not. I mean, I guess that's the whole point because it's a wartime term. But, you know, I've never heard that before. Meat grinder makes yeah, and sense. It's, so. it's, a, it's a good use because, you know, no one should be like beautifying war or making war a poetic Roman- thing. Romanticizing it. Romanticizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I like to use dumb words that I make up on the spot. <laughs> what? Don't, I think it's a I don't beautify, remember. which no one uses beautify. that term. <laughs> Come no, on. <laughs> no, beautify. No, beautify is a word, but who who gives a crap? Let's move on. So, yeah. what do you think <laughs> is going to happen next? Well, I'll say that the Ukrainian military has already strengthened their defensive lines west of Bakhmut to kind of block the Russian advance. That is, if Ukrainian troops finally do retreat from the city. Now, the the nearby town of Chazov Yar, which kind of sits on a hill just a few miles west, could become the next barrier against Russian forces, meaning the next Bakhmut. Ukrainian and Western officials have emphasized that a Ukrainian retreat from Bakhmut is it does not have a significant or strategic significance, and it does it definitely doesn't change the course of the conflict. And speaking of strategic significance, let's get right into what happened or what is happening in Moldova. This is the third week in a row that we are going to focus on that country. So what is the latest? Well, since Russia began intensifying its pressure on the country, Moldova and Romania have pledged to strengthen their economic ties. Now, Moldova, it's it's a highly dependent country on Russian gas, and it's been hit hard by the economic fallout of the war in Ukraine. Now, the Moldovan prime minister called on all entrepreneurs from both of its banks to develop business and use all the economic potential that they can in order to increase the economy there. Now, Romania's president emphasized that Romania is firmly in support of Moldova's European agenda, which is to get into the European Union. They're also supportive of Moldova's economic recovery and their security. So what is the situation in Transnistria and why has it come under increasing global scrutiny? So the region, this is like a, it's a, it's a sliver offshoot of Moldova and it's guarded by hundreds of Russian troops who are defending this Soviet era ammunition depot. Now, analysts continue to speculate that Transnistria is going to be used in a plot to destabilize Moldova. Moldova. They're going to do that by staging Russian troops along the border. Moldova's prime minister said Russian troops should actually be exiled from the region. Now, Transnistria is obviously pro-Russian. That's why they broke away from Moldova. But the uh, the situation is, is under increasing global scrutiny due to the potential for conflict to erupt and the involvement of multiple nations in the situation. So moving the war, this is going to actually move the war from a Ukrainian operation to an Eastern European operation. And that may kick off while China is becoming increasingly aggressive towards Taiwan. So give us an update on the situation in Beijing. All right. Well, this week, China's new foreign minister, Ping Gang, warned of what he called in confrontation with the U.S. If Washington does not change its approach. Let me tell you, DC is not going to change its approach. But uh-huh. he accused the U.S. of a reckless gamble 
and said, nothing will prevent a violent conflict if the U.S. continues to speed down the wrong path. Honestly, the U.S. and China's relations are at the worst it's been in decades. Tensions have soared even further now in recent years. That's because China is becoming increasingly authoritarian at home, and it's also becoming very assertive outside of its borders. What do you make of the potential visit of U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to Taiwan in April? Well, China is going to see that as a major provocation, much like when Speaker Pelosi traveled there. China has made it clear that it sees Taiwan as a core interest, and any U.S. support for Taiwan's independence is seen as a direct threat to China's sovereignty. Now, the Chinese Communist Party is unlikely to tolerate any visit by a senior U.S. official to Taiwan. Is military conflict with China inevitable at this point? It's close, but, you know, I don't think that the conflict is inevitable. I'm going to say the risk of conflict is definitely increasing every single day. China's rise as a global superpower is challenging the status quo, especially in the Indo-Pacific region. Not only is the United States pushing back, but Taiwan has stayed firm in their stance that they are a sovereign, independent nation. New Zealand and Australia are increasing their military spending to match with China, and Japan and South Korea have also increased their military spending and their ties with the United States. Okay, well, let's get into the Korea discussion. If the situation yep. with China is tense, the one with North Korea is even worse, honestly. Before you do the analysis of that, what has been happening this week on the Korean Peninsula? So it's been crazy. This this week, Kim Jong-un's sister made statements warning of severe consequences for the U.S. and South Korea if they proceed with joint military drills. Now, those joint military drills are scheduled to begin next week. She said North Korea is prepared to take quick and overwhelming action in response to any perceived threats. I can say that South Korean intelligence has indicated that North Korea is going to test launch its new intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs next month. And then they may also launch a spy satellite in April. Um, this is all in addition to large scale exercising involving their unconventional weapons. I believe she also stated that shooting down one of North Korea's ICBMs over international waters would be regarded as a declaration of war. <laughs> Gee, I wonder where she came up with that, where that rule Since, came from. The, yeah. <laughs> Can you discuss hmm. the potential strange. ramifications of such an event? Yeah, of course. If the U.S. and if the U.S. or South Korea were to shoot down one of North Korea's ICBMs, it's almost certainly going to escalate the situation, and that honestly could possibly, honestly possibly, but it could lead to uh, a oh. full scale war. Not right. to make light of the situation, but of not. North Korea views its missile program as a crucial part of its national defense strategy. So any attack on that program is going to be seen as a direct attack on the state of North Korea itself. So I will say this. All parties involved need to be aware of the potential for conflict. And I'm saying that they need to be aware of potential conflict that may possibly get other adversarial countries involved, not just North Korea. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Shifting our focus now, there have been reports that the United States may deploy troops to Mexico to help fight against drug cartels. What are your thoughts on this possibility and what would be the geopolitical implications of such a move? So the deployment of U.S. troops to Mexico is just going to have a, a huge, significant geopolitical implications. It's going to be seen as a significant escalation in the U.S.-Mexico relationship. It could also exacerbate existing tensions between the two countries, you know, with the border crisis. And it could lead to a backlash from the Mexican public. Additionally, the deployment of U.S. troops could also raise concerns among other countries in the region, particularly those that are traditionally wary of U.S. intervention in South Latin America, which includes South America. So the U.S. is just saying they're going to send troops over there without the backing of the Mexican government, or am I misunderstanding that? Well, we we don't know that right now. Oh, so the Mexican is, government uh, hasn't said anything like to they confirm? They oh, okay, okay. I could see why that would tick people off. I mean, you know. (laughs) Sorry, my brain is not working right now. Mexican troops coming into the U.S. without proper U.S. approval. Right. Or Canadian troops or, you know. Right. Well, we wouldn't care about Canadian troops, would we? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. If they had a reason to send them over here, obviously we're doing something wrong. You know what I mean? That's true. This is all. This is just us talking. It's not. It was just an example because it's the, the other country. Nothing that is on the table in that regard. Because well, I'm just saying it's the other country that borders us. So that's why I yeah. brought that up. Okay. So now we got that cleared out. So how might this move be received by those other countries in the region? So the other countries in the region, particularly those with their own security concerns related to drug trafficking may view the deployment of U.S. troops to Mexico as a sign that the U.S. is seeking to expand its influence in the entire region. And this could lead to increased tensions between the United States and those countries. Some argue that the deployment of U.S. troops to Mexico would be a violation of Mexican sovereignty. So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I definitely see where that could be the case, particularly if it's done, like we talked about, without the consent of the Mexican government. I would say ultimately any decision to deploy U.S. troops to Mexico should be made in consultation with the Mexican government and should be done with the aim of supporting Mexico's efforts to combat drug trafficking and organized crime. Would the U.S. work in tandem with the Mexican military? So that's the best way to assure Mexico's sovereignty, but it does come with a risk. And what is that risk? Well, in October of 2022, it Data was released that exposed Mexico's military ties to the cartel. It's alleged that despite being tasked with fighting the drug war in Mexico, some of its soldiers actually sold weapons to the cartels. Um, Other documents claim that a top law enforcement officer was taking $250,000 a month to protect the cartel. So the corruption runs very deep in that country. So why does the United States want to get involved? Does it have to do with the situation along the border? Yes. Yeah, so some of the issues do pertain to the southern border. Of- officials believe that the fentanyl crisis in the United States has actually been caused by the cartel funneling drugs through the border. But also, many U.S. citizens are traveling to Mexico and getting kidnapped and then eventually murdered. So yeah. we had a few years ago, 
Mexico made U.S. headlines when a group of Mormons were ki- was killed in the country. Now, recently, as in the last month, four U.S. citizens were kidnapped. Two of the victims were found dead. And the other two seemed to have been returned to the U.S. for medical treatment. Now, Mexico said that they arrested one suspect while they're also investigating suspects of the Gulf cartel who may be responsible for the attack. And who is the Gulf cartel? Now, the Gulf cartel is one of the oldest and most powerful criminal organizations in Mexico. They're involved in drug trafficking, extortion, kidnapping, and other illegal activities like murder. It operates primarily in the northeast of Mexico, but it does have a presence in other parts of Mexico, and it does have presence in the United States as well. The group has a long history of violence. They've been responsible for numerous high-profile incidents, including clashes with rival cartels. They've had attacks on security forces, and they've also participated in the assassination of public officials. Uh, Let's stick with the U.S. and give an update on what intelligence officials have said about new information they received on the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage, which, of course, absolves us of any wrongdoing, right? Yes. Has this aligned with what Seymour Hersh said in his article? (laughs) Yes. No. (laughs) Like he said... And I will say you what you just said was my initial reaction when that intelligence report came out in the New York Times. It was right. like, that's very convenient that you were going to point the finger at someone else. But I mean, to say well, I mean, that, that analysis seems, of... That's par for the course lately. Everybody's yeah. pointing fingers at everybody else. Trying to like, it's not a spy balloon. It's a weather balloon. And we're like, no, it's a spy balloon. And everything else and, that's going on. And then on. we'll shoot down a hobbyist balloon. Yeah. <laughs> but what what's coming out now is the analysis of the perpetrators of the Nord Stream sabotage is actually all over the place and quite honestly hasn't pointed the finger at Russia at all. <laughs> it, it looks like it doesn't make sense that they would have done that. But right. according to the New York Times, U.S. officials reviewed intelligence, believe that the saboteurs who carried out the attacks were most likely Ukrainian or Russian nationals. Russian nationals or some combination <laughs> of the two. And when I say Russian nationals, but they don't point the finger at Russia, it's Russian nationals who are opposed to President Putin. Okay. I also say that they make a point to state there is no evidence linking the attacks to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky or any other Ukrainian government official. So what do you make of the possibility that a pro-Ukraine group may have been behind the attacks? It's just difficult to say at this point. That's given that there's no firm evidence linking the attacks to any specific group. I will say it's worth noting that there's a history of pro-Ukrainian groups targeting Russian infrastructure in the past. For example, in 2014, a group of Ukrainian hackers claimed responsibility for a cyber attack that caused a blackout in western Ukraine, and that had initially been attributed to Russian state-sponsored hackers. So do you not trust any of the intelligence being released right now? I mean, it's not that I don't trust the intelligence. Listen, I'm going to say that intelligence officials need to do a much better job of explaining what intelligence is to journalists who are reporting on the situation. Just because an agency says they analyze the information one way, that doesn't mean all intelligence practitioners agree. Also, that doesn't make the released intelligence gospel. It doesn't make it true. Too many times, and especially recently with social media, when an Uh intelligence official makes a claim, it's reported as, 
quote, intelligence official claims this is what happened. The reality is just way too nuanced to report to be reported that way. Well, let's say enough information is there that shows it was a pro-Ukrainian or anti-Putin group. What are the potential implications of these attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines? So if it is indeed the case that a pro-Ukrainian group was responsible for the attack, this could escalate tensions between the two countries. And we already know where they're at right now. It could also boost support for Putin. It's going to boost support for his United Russia party. I'll also say it's worth noting that events like this have a tendency to spiral out of control. And that's particularly true if there's, in this case, no clear evidence to support one side or the other. So it's very important that everyone approach this incident with caution and restraint. Don't just read a headline and say, they're saying this is true. Trust nothing until you've verified everything. Well, let's stick with U.S. intelligence and please explain what the heck is going on at the Department of Homeland Security, please. Yeah, crazy story here. So this came from Politico, who released a report stating that the Department of Homeland Security has been running an unknown domestic intelligence program that allows officials to interview just about anyone in the United States. This is including people who are in immigrant detention centers, local jails, and federal prisons. They call the program Overt Human Intelligence Collection Program. That does not seem very ethical, quite honestly. I agree with that. The fact that the agency is directly questioning Americans as part of a domestic intelligence program is deeply concerning. That's given the history of scandals related to past domestic intelligence programs, especially by the FBI. Can you explain what programs by the FBI you are referring to? Yeah, so the FBI actually has a long history of controversial domestic intelligence programs. I'm sure that's not a surprise to anybody. No. One of the most most well-known examples is the FBI's counterintelligence program, which was active from the 50s to the 70s. It was called COINTELPRO. And that's of of the 1900s, boys and girls. Yes. The 50s. Yes, sorry. <laughs> 1950s and sorry, 70s. You have and to specify. You have to specify. That's true. I appreciate that. But that program was designed to disrupt and neutralize political organizations that the FBI considered to be a threat to national security. Nothing could go wrong there, right? Right. right. <laughs> that program actually targeted a wide group of civil rights activists, anti war oh. protesters. Oh, yeah. And then they went really hard on socialist and communist organizations. Some of the tactics they used during this program, they did wiretapping, surveillance, infiltration of target organizations by undercover agents just to get information. So the FBI has done this a while. They've, They've been criticized a lot. They've also been criticized for its use of national security letters. Also a program they did as well which allowed the agency to obtain information from companies without a warrant. That's (laughs) illegal. Uh, Right. There's also been concerns about the FBI's use of sting operations in which agents pose as terrorists or other criminals to entrap suspects. So all of those tactics led to accusations of entrapment and violations of civil liberties. So there are concerns now that the Department of Homeland Security is taking tactics straight out of the FBI playbook. And you told me this week that the inmates being questioned did not have access to their lawyers or their lawyers were totally unaware of what was going on. So that seems a little sketchy. 
definitely. If that is true, it's unethical, but it's also a, a potential violation of constitutional rights and due process. But yes, mm -hmm. if you were in a federal prison, you still have certain inalienable rights, rights and you have a due process. Right. The ordinary practice is to obtain permission from an individual's lawyer before questioning them. That's especially after formal charges have been filed. By, by, by bypassing this process, the Department of Homeland Security appears to be ignoring constitutional protections, let alone the standard legal practices that are in the United States. Rules for thee and not for me. Oof, don't we know it. Yeah. So it was certainly a busy week for the intelligence community, but I did kind of like that little... It was like a little throwback to history's mysteries right there, talking yeah, about what the FBI has done in the past. <laughs> Do you it's have so anything else that you... Yeah. Oh. Well, well, yeah, of course it is. But do you have anything else yes. to discuss this week? Yeah, after that, we are out of time. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you found it informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakwin Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there. <laughs>